Funny thing happened to me about a month ago. I get a call because it is time for my 50th high school reunion. And a lady by the name of Mary Lance Spiesterbach calls me, and she says, uh, Jim, I'm calling to see if I can encourage you to come to your 50th high school reunion. We had a class, graduating class, probably larger than your high school. Uh, my high school class, senior class, was 1,200, of which 941 made it out. <laughs> uh, and so I have a T-shirt with all 941 names on it. I can't read it, but it's up, they're all there. And she goes, you know, there, there's 200 signed up, and we'd really like to have you come this this time. And I go, you know, I've got some health issues and whatever. And she goes, you know, Jim, I remember everybody knows you. You were part of the in crowd. <laughs> I felt very good. <laughs> But I, I talked to Mary Lance, as I knew her, and I said, Mary, I don't know what Jim DeMole you're thinking of, but I sat on the bench for the high school varsity basketball team that went 2-18 and 18 that year. More than that, I wrote stories for the high school newspaper that never got published. Shall I go on? In fact, Mary Lance Spiesterbach I thought you were on the in crowd. Here's my theory. If you go back to junior high or, or you go to high school, my theory is the in crowd was always the crowd you weren't a part of and always the crowd you wanted to be in. The in crowd was a group where you go, how do I, you know, what's my entry into that group? They are the cool kids. They are the love kids. I mean, he, he, you know, what is the in crowd made up of? Well, I said to Mary Lance, I said, well, you know, by the clothes that you wore, uh, by the people that you hung out with at lunch, uh, by the activities that you were involved in, by the classes, the advanced placement classes that you took, I thought you were the in crowd. And she goes, no, I thought you were. What is it that puts us in the in crowd in terms of a school? Popularity, personality, athleticism, intelligence, looks, things like that. And I, get, I must admit, I got all those. But as I look out this morning, so do you. I believe many of you are carrying around the same things. But as you go back to high school or middle school, you're saying, there was this group that I could never quite crack into. And it was made up of others and I wasn't able to get in it yet. Now, since high school, we've probably made this transition, haven't we? We realize it's not our social identity that counts so much, but maybe it's more of our achievement identity. What is it we're involved in that we're getting done? What is it that is making a name for us? What is it that we really throw ourselves into because it means so much to us? But we would all love the acceptance that comes from being in that in-crowd. And the only question I have for you is, which crowd is that, first of all? Which crowd is that, as you remembered, and even now? And secondly, how do you get into it? How could I get into it? Now, let's go back 2,000 years. Probably not quite that long, but almost. Sitting around a table in Ephesus, 
are a couple, a young couple with two young children. They're counting the cost of publicly de- uh, declaring that they are now followers of Jesus Christ. They have switched from one crowd to another crowd. And they're counting their cost. I'm going to call them Stephanus and Julia or, or Steve and Jules. And, and, and they've crossed that line of faith that we talked about last week. They have been listening to Paul. They have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but they haven't wanted to say much about it yet. They continue to go to meetings, but they go rather secretly, not telling anybody. And they realize that at this moment, at this moment, as they talk to one another, say, why keep it secret anymore? Well, they know why. To get into God's crowd means it might have some cost about the in crowd there in Ephesus. It means they might be losing some friends who carry around a lot of influence in that city of about 400,000 people. It means that both sets of parents will be disappointed in them because they will not be worshiping at the temple of Artemis together anymore. It means that their small jewelry business might suffer because he hammers silver and gold to go on to the idols of Artemis. It means that when they make this choice together, they have to go to their children and say, we know that sometimes you don't like Sunday school, but mom and dad are going, and guess what? You have to come too. Probably also means that kids, we're going to have a little less money to spend on because we think our income is going down just, you know, somewhat and our giving is going to go up. See, Paul is writing a letter to these younger Christians that were in the in-crowded Ephesus the cultural in crowd, and now they're jumping into God's in crowd, and, and, and they're, they're counting the cost. And as he writes to them, uh, little families like Stephanus and Julius, he writes to them and he says, I want you to remember two things, and then I want you to have some things that you're going to count on. So the things that he wants them to remember are where they came from. What was their past like? And I want to say, as I go through this, maybe you've been in churches where they're always pointing a finger at you and talking about, you did this wrong and you did that wrong. It has nothing to do with this. He's writing them and he's not giving a long list of their sins, but instead he's giving a long list of what they missed out on. I'm in Ephesians chapter 2, and, and I'm in verse 11, and it begins this whole next section. The last section was about the, 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 the marvelous grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. This one is about what it means to come into God's in crowd. And he says, therefore, Stephanus, Julia, everybody else, therefore remember formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. The first thing to remember is you were not part of God's in crowd. You were in God's out crowd because you weren't Jews yet. God's chosen people were, are, and will be the Jews. And that means that uh, since the days of Abraham, his in crowd and the ones that he has been giving his promises to are the Jews. But God's intent was never that the Jews would hold it alone, but then spread it throughout the whole world. And God would eventually do that, but unfortunately it wasn't from the Jews, but from the Jew, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
That is how he spread it from the Jews to what is called the Gentiles. Well, you know, when we say Jews and Gentiles, you might think, isn't that just a bit racist? And I've got to say this, in a time, in a political you know, season, when isn't there one in the United States, but in, in a political season where racism and hate speech and all this is being brought up, I, I need to say this, um, it's just a part of us. And I don't do that to point a finger at you. I just want to say it's a part of humanity. And and throughout history, we've seen this. Let me just give you three examples. The Greeks, they considered their culture the most advanced ever developed. And so either you were Greek, or if you weren't in the Greek in-crowd, enjoying their philosophy, their culture, their art, everything else, their athletics, you were a barbarian. Now, you look on your ancient maps. There's no... Uh, uh, area called Barbara or Barbaria. So somehow they came up with this, you know, you are on the out crowd because you are not Greek. And it's everybody else. The Jews were the same. The Jews said, if you are not a Jew, then you are a Gentile, or the Hebrew word is the goyim. Means you are in God's out crowd We are in God's in-crowd because of the way we live, the way we talk, the way we treat one another, the way we worship. We've just got everything all together. Well, we don't have a country. We've been thrown out of that. But other than that, we're doing fine. And there was a third one. If you were uh, a Roman, then you were a part of the world's uh, foremost superpower. Nothing had been more powerful throughout history. And that means that you were either a Roman or you were from NYC, not New York City, not yet conquered. And you were there on their target to eventually conquer you so you could come into the in crowd. So when it comes to God and his people, the Jews fit right in. They were the Jews, they were the Gentiles, we're on the in crowd, you're on the out crowd. That's just the way it's going to be. Remember that. Paul says to Stephanus and Julia and everybody else, who were never Jews, who never wanted to pay the cost of being Jews. You were in the out crowd. Yes, the out crowd is about 98% of humanity, but you're out. Then there's a second thing to remember in verse 12. He says, also remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. you got to forgive me, but my tongue is still healing. And my THs and Ss and SHs and T... So, there's no one in the front row except for you <laughs> and you, and I have to go a long way to spit at you, but it just might come out a little, uh, a, a little moist, okay, as I do these terms. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, you see, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Remember that not only were you in the out crowd, you were missing all these spiritual blessings that only God can bring to you. Only God is allowed to do this. So the key word in verse 12 is the out crowd means you are without. Every spiritual blessing the Jews have, the goyim or the Gentiles do not have. First of all, they were without Christ because Christ says that he has come on his mission mainly to the Jews. And yet you study the the life of Christ in the Gospels and you realize he spent more time with the Goyim, with the Gentiles, than anybody else, any other prophet in history. But by background, Stephanus and Julia, 
they are without Christ because they are not in God's in crowd. They have no part in God's chosen people, Israel. They have no part in the promises that God has made to Israel and that he fulfills. So none of those promises that he blesses Israel with apply to them at that time. They have a nationality, Stephanus and Julia, that they can claim, but it never transcends the, you might say, the physical borders of either Ephesus or or that region that they called Asia that they lived in. And they were finally without hope. Without hope for eternity because they were without God in their lives who gives us eternal hope. I recently went to see a movie called Risen. And uh, it's a movie about the resurrection of Jesus, but it, it specifically settles in on a uh, Roman tribune. That means he's over centurions. He's like a major or general. And um, he is given a specific task, and that is to find and produce the corpse of Jesus Christ. I want to say this. That's a tough job. <laughs> Think about it. And so what he does is he finds a corpse that had been crucified. It has all the nail marks in it, not not on the side. He puts one on the side himself, and he presents it to Pilate. And Pilate says, this is Jesus? And he goes, no, but he'll do. (laughs) That's all we need to prove it. Well, in the midst of this, as, as the movie begins, Pilate and this tribune are talking together in a Roman bath, and he says, well, to the tribune, what is it you're seeking in life? And and he goes, well, I'm seeking that when I'm done here as a tribune and out of the military, I'll have land, I'll have a family, and I'll have peace. In other words, I won't be at war anymore. And Pilate asks, war outside or inside? You see, as he's talking, you know, Pilate is no prophet, of course, but this is what a movie does. He, he lets them know that what is, whatever it is you're seeking, whatever it is that transcends this physical life, how do you think you're going to find it? Because nobody else is. This is very different than the other movie, The Gladiator, where it looks like everybody's going to heaven, okay? They just sort of float away. The, the more historical one is what you'll see in Risen. And here's the thing. When he says, remember this, what he's getting at is, remember that we all have what I call a before story. What was our life like before? What was life like before Stephanus and Julia started going to the meetings in that lecture hall where Paul was speaking day after day? And each of us can think of when we began to believe, even if you say, hey, you know, I started Sunday school at three. But somewhere along the line, things started to fall into place. And you realize, I didn't have a terrible, you know, before story, but, but I didn't understand it all. What he's saying is, is in this before story, it's not that you were immoral. It's not that you were unpopular in looking for acceptance. You might have been very moral and very popular and filled with talent and great expectations for your future. But spiritually, you were without God and you were missing the blessings that God wanted to give you. The spiritual blessings. Now, for me, an example, at the age of 17, I could do good philosophy about the existence of God, even at that age. 
and I believed in his, in his existence. But I did not have a, any relationship with God. In fact, once or twice, I tried to pray, and God said no, and I couldn't accept it. So I turned my back on him. I did not know God, and I did not know what God thought about me. Now, for some of you, your before story is far more dramatic than mine. And that's wonderful. For some of you, you just, you're not into drama at all. Your parents beat that out of you. No drama here. And, and that's okay too. But everywhere in your before story, you have to say, I was without a relationship with God. I was not an evil person for me. I wouldn't say I was evil, but I was very self-centered, not God-centered. And there was a spiritual vacuum going on inside of my soul. So that's the first thing. He says, remember what you came from. But then he talks about, now take note. Take note. Don't forget. The second thing is what happened to us. And so verse 13 begins, but now, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You see, the next comes the realization of how God becomes real to you. Something spiritually happens to us. And many of us can describe it personally, but this, this passage describes it cosmically. It says, you were far away from God, but now you are near him. You were without him, but now God is with you. You have been brought near. And notice that that's a passive voice. You have been brought near. You didn't bring yourself. You were brought. Who brought you? God. He said, well, wait a minute. I did all the thinking. I did all the deciding. God was bringing you near to him. He was the one active, at work. Uh, the one who was just breaking down every intellectual and, 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 and willful barrier that you had. That's what begins to happen to you. And he says it was done through the blood of Christ... Meaningly, meaning that Christ's death ends the, fine, the finality of the separation and makes it possible for you to come into a relationship with God as he created you to have. The blood of Jesus pays the price for you. The blood of Jesus also was the separation that Jesus experienced, separation from God for that period of time as he took on our sin. But that price that he paid, the shedding of his blood, the giving up of his righteousness, it broke down the barrier of our unrighteous nature and erects a a new relationship between us and God. One wall broken down, two people, God and man, brought together. Now it goes on. To describe this even more, what has happened to you? And it says in verses 14 to 16, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in the flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create one new man out of the two, thus making in him this one body, meaning the church, to reconcile both of them to God. Jew and Gentile, both of them to God through the cross. What is he accomplishing there? You see, Jesus 
and his death is what restores the peace in our lives. Peace between us and God, but the emphasis here is between the in crowd and the out crowd. The Jews are no longer the in crowd, and you're no longer the out crowd, but in Christ, you, you come into God's eternal in crowd. Where before they would say, you know, you're really not good enough to socialize with us, and I've had people do that to me. Either you're not rich enough, you're not smart enough. Nobody has said you're not good looking enough. But um, uh, these two that were separated, the Jews thinking they were morally superior and looking down upon the Gentiles, which is most of the world, they have now been brought together. For the Jews, they had to put their trust in Jesus Christ and not in the rules that they kept to earn his favor. It was no longer about obedience, it was about trust. And for Stephanus and Julia, Gentiles, they were told they never had a chance, according to the Jews, but through the death of Jesus, God now creates one new humanity out of the two. They are no longer Jew or Gentile, they are one in Christ. Before, there was a wall between those two. Now they've come together. United through what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. That's the then story. You, you look at that and say, well, that doesn't describe me. It wasn't meant to describe your experience. It was meant to describe what God has done that you might not even be aware of. This is something that was happening in the heavenly places that he has declared for you. And he has granted to you your human experience may not take into account all that God has done. So we all have a then story. And in those then stories, all of them include Jesus Christ in this one new humanity. It counts for every human who's lived, every human who's alive now, and every human who will live in the future. Jesus Christ comes into the picture to bring the two into one. Otherwise, the two don't come together with Jesus out of the picture. So we live lives that are asking, therefore, not just, is there a God? We live lives that are asking, how can I know this God and all that he's done? You see, one is a question of logic. Is there a God? The other is what I call personal theology. I want to know this God. I want to know what he's like, how he acts, what his character and nature is like. I want to know him more. And I understand that as I know him more, there's more to this life than my human experience. He has done things in the heavenly realms, the spiritual blessings that we started out with in in, in Ephesians chapter 1 that I just wasn't aware of. And now we're listing many of these spiritual blessings, and it is overwhelming. And Paul says this, you are now in God's in crowd. It begins with, Je- with what Jesus does on the cross. And for me, it was personally knowing that I had avoided God and avoided Jesus because I thought, God's smiling at this. He's laughing his head off right now. I hated church. My mom sent me to church when I was bad. 
Any of you bad this morning? Is that why your spouse or your children dragged you here? What a terrible reason. But for some reason, not only was church boring, but church just didn't connect with me. And I realized I was there to make up something that I had done, even if my mother was inventing it. Each then story has Jesus in it somewhere because that's when I first heard who Jesus was, what he did on the cross. I mean, you might say it was spoken before, but I never heard, I never listened to it, I never applied it to myself. And now what he has offered to me, my in-story begins with that moment in which I'm hearing, this is what Christ has done. That's the then story. But that's not the end. Then it goes on to what we are now. And verses 19 and 20 begin to explain that. Consequently, you no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. The third part is, this is what the in crowd is like. He gives three images that we want to just work through quickly, but in these images, he's sort of explaining what these spiritual blessings are looking like. What is it like to be in God's in crowd? It means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. It means to be a member of God's family. And it means to be a, a, a building uh, product or a, a, a piece of uh, construction for God's temple. A building of holy people doing holy things, living a holy lifestyle. And so verse 21 and 22 says, In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become, this is where the temple comes in, a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So first understand you are brought into the kingdom of God. You are now a citizen of heaven, of God's kingdom. And he gives it to you and to every other individual who places his or her trust in Christ. Now listen, Paul is writing this letter in jail because he's committed crimes against Rome. And if Paul went back to Jerusalem, he'd be in jail because he committed crimes against Israel. You can't win. Both the Jews and the Gentiles are after him. He realizes no matter where he goes, he'll be executed. But he's writing this letter to let them know there is a different country that's out there. Stephanus, Julia, count the cost. This is what it's costing Paul. It probably won't cost you as much, but count the cost. Because the in crowd is costly to get into. But the promise is, is you won't want to leave it. How do you get into the in crowd? How do you become a citizen? Only by placing your trust in Jesus. Church attendance will not do it, though I encourage you to come to church. My livelihood depends upon it. Good morals won't get you into the kingdom. They won't hurt you. Bribing me won't get you into the kingdom, but you can try. To get citizenship, understand God is the one in authority. It comes from God and he offers it to you. And if you placed your trust in heaven, you are now a citizen. And, 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 and you have a place, as Jesus has promised, in his heaven for eternity. Do you have a passport for eternal life? Just want you to know God is offering it. You may not know that, that it's yours yet. And you have to receive it. 
The second thing is that you are placed in God's household or God's family as his eternal daughter or his eternal son. And you become siblings of billions of Christians. And there's something that they have in common. Every citizen of heaven has been adopted by God. No natural births. Every citizen has been adopted by God. And it's important we get that and understand it. Um, We lived in a small community for 11 years in the Mojave Desert. And it was one of those communities so small that you actually invited your your public school teachers over to your home for for lunch and for dinner so that the the students and the teachers could get to know the family. It was a wonderful experience. I don't see it happening much here. But, but as we did that, we made many friends in, in the education community. And it was, it was wonderful because our, our kids would say, I want the same teacher that my older brother had. And we could get it. We could get it. Well, one of my daughter's best friends, in fact, my daughter's best friend since, since preschool, was a gal by the name of Becca. And she was gorgeous and she was smart. And, and yet, in second grade, she had this, this issue. She goes up to the teacher, and this is a public school, but she says to the teacher, uh, I don't think I'm going to go to heaven. And the teacher says, oh, really, Becca? Why not? Well, because I was adopted. And um, somehow in her mind, you had to be born of, you know, your your birth mother and birth father had to grow up with them. Otherwise, there was something wrong with you and you wouldn't go to heaven. That's, that's the law. That's the way Jews work. And the teacher looks at her and this is what she says. Becca, I don't think that's a deal breaker for God. Well, guess how long it took that story to go around in a small community? About 47 seconds. I heard it with that very day. The teacher called my wife and told me. The mother called my wife and told me. The the adoptive mother called my wife and told me. And I I knew I couldn't use it in church because it was way too personal. I can use it now. Um, It's not a deal breaker. In fact, I want to say this. Adoption is the only way you will get into heaven. Because you have no birthright. God takes you from the out crowd and brings you into his family. And this is his gift that he gives to you. And it just demonstrates how great his love is for everybody who places their trust in Christ. It's great for everybody. But for everybody who places their trust in Christ, he says, now you are my child. And nothing will separate us from my love. It's the only way into heaven that you realize there's no standing you have unless he adopts you. And finally, he calls you a temple. And what do we mean by a temple? Uh, temples in Paul's days were declared holy places. This is a church, and, and it's not holy. Uh, it, it, it's just a gathering place. And it could be used for many things besides worship. And we, we will be doing that in the future. But like the big temple, you know, the, one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis in um, in Ephesus at the time, it was called a holy place, but very unholy things were going on inside of it. 
And the point that he is making here is that the temple of God is built upon the cornerstone, and that cornerstone is Jesus, and every stone comes in and is laid in some sort of connection with the cornerstone. You may be in another corner of the building, but still, through, through every other stone, you are connected together. We are joined together with Jesus. And if we are not next to him, we are a stone in the same holy edifice with Jesus right there. That is what God calls his church. God's temple is holy because each of us are stones. And each of us declared by God holy in his temple. Some of you come from backgrounds where you think there have to be you know, sort of special ceremonies to come in. The only things holy in here are the people who attend, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I'm holy. Not because of the life I live. I'm holy because God declared it so in Christ Jesus. We call Paul, St. Paul, because he was holy. I'm St. James. And proud of it. But not because of what I did. But what God did. So you put this all together. And you see, there's two ways to approach this. One way to approach it is, man, I'm special in God's eyes. I never thought how great it would be to be in the in crowd because I never really examined the spiritual blessings that are available to me. I never really studied and saw all that God has done because you know, these are things that are on the heaven side and I don't know if I really experience them in my day-to-day life. But God has declared this and I believe it. That's one way to look at it, the personal side. How blessed I am. But remember Paul in these first three chapters is bragging on God, not on himself and not on the church in Ephesus. He's bragging on God. And so the the attitude we're supposed to have as we look at this is, What a blesser we have in God. I am overwhelmed with the blesser. Not with the blessings I'm experiencing. With the blesser. What a great kingdom he governs. What a great family God fathers. What a great holy temple he builds. So let me ask... Are you one this morning who attends church or do you see church as something more? Do you understand that through faith in Christ, he calls you a living stone, God's temple, a holy people? What a God. And once you realize what what a great God he is, then you can ask the personal question. Does your part as one stone in the building make God's temple appear more magnificent? Or does your stone in that part of the building need some cleaning and some, you know, some power washing, some crack filling, some repurposing? So it'll so greatly affect what it means to be God's in crowd and part of his temple. Let's pray. You are marvelous, Lord. You are marvelous. 
And we, as we look at a book like this, thank you for allowing us to be overwhelmed by your greatness and your magnificence. Yes, we do have personal experience that, that, uh, that you have taken us into, and that's wonderful. But Father, may we have eyes for you because that is what theology is all about. Knowing your goodness, your greatness, your perfection, your holiness and allowing ourselves to be overwhelmed by it. That's why Paul was writing. Stephanus and Julia Count the cost, but know God and the cost will not seem as severe. Thank you in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.